0: it's time to take the quiz five questions five minutes a day five days a week take the quiz every weekday at the quiz. fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did play share and of course listen to the quiz at the quiz. fox it's the media buzz meter with howard kurtz i was intently studying a new fox news poll out last night no that's not how i spend my time usually. Uh, I was on the special report panel and this was being released and I, you know, there were any number of statistics I could have been asked about. But there were some numbers I didn't get a chance to talk about because of time constraints uh, that jumped out at me. One of them had to do with, and this was put up on the screen, what do people think about the classified documents scandal? 51% said they believe Donald Trump did something illegal. 37% say they believe Joe Biden did something illegal. 22% had that view for Mike Pence. Now, obviously, you have to factor in uh, the opposition party. I didn't get the breakdown on that particular one. But, you know, the public is pretty smart. And I'm not saying that Donald Trump did something illegal, but I'm saying clearly he has more uh, to to explain when it comes to the long subpoena battle and and the documents that were discovered there. And at the same time, uh, a lesser judgment for Joe Biden, whose people did voluntarily notify uh, the archives and the FBI. But, you know, the point that I made there is, and I think you've heard me make it here, is, why did the Biden people not disclose and wait for CBS to disclose that the FBI had come in and supervised the search? of classified documents or potential classified documents at the Penn-Biden Center in Washington. Because otherwise it looked like, well, you know, Donald Trump gets an FBI raid and Joe Biden gets to have his own people just do it. They didn't even put that out What well, it would have helped them. All right, a couple other numbers here. Biden job approval rating as president, 45%. Uh, so-so. Uh, hard to get above 50 in these polarized days. However when asked the approval, do you approve or disapprove of Donald Trump, 44%. So isn't that a classic snapshot of a divided country? I think so. And the other thing is that that 45% approval for Biden uh, hasn't changed much, one to two points, in recent months, which says to me that the document's controversy is not, hurting the president as much as those of us who live and breathe this stuff inside the Beltway might think. And here's one more number for you. Because, you know, when it goes down the list of like, what's the most important issue to you? Inflation was at the top. A lot of people thought the economy was not in good shape. Uh, it seems to me we still have pretty close to record unemployment. Uh, but so when it came to an issue like illegal immigration, twice as many Republicans thought that was a very important issue as the Democrats. So you would expect that. But then we get to this number. Are you dissatisfied with the direction of the country? 86% of Republicans said yes. And that's hardly shocking, right? Democratic president, they don't like the guy, 86%. 55% of Democrats said they're dissatisfied with the direction of the country. I mean, here you had Joe Biden in his first two years pass trillions of dollars, uh, just, you know, almost unimaginable sums for climate change, for health care, for infrastructure, and on and on and on. I mean, fulfilling the wildest imagination of Bernie's left-wing agenda, and he still is underwater with people in his own party who think the country is going in the wrong direction. Like, what else would Biden have to do? And I think that's a number that should worry the White House as uh, Biden gears up for the expected re-election announcement, which will be sometime after next week's State of the Union. All right, here's a little item about Donald Trump and Bob Woodward. Now, you're going to say, aha, I heard this yesterday, that that Trump is suing Woodward over the uh, audio tapes and turning them into an audio book. Well, that part is true, but that's not what this is about. This is about Trump posting on Truth Social and linking to an article. Bob Woodward scolds media colleagues for Trump-Russia coverage. Um, and it kind of touts the fact that Woodward is saying the mainstream media at large, he's criticizing the mainstream media at large, and calling for a self-assessment for the entire industry. Well, you've heard me talk about this. It's the Jeff Gerth piece in Columbia Journalism Review which really stuck it to the MSM. And Woodward, as he has been over the years, certainly in his interviews with me, uh, among the most candid in saying, you know, we screwed up, we took this too far. The steel dossier was unreliable. Uh, and so it just goes to show you, I mean, here Trump is suing Woodward for $49 million. Not that he's going to get $49 million or even $1. But if Woodward says something that's favorable to him, next day, boom. Look at this from Bob Woodward. Everybody plays this game. They're happy to uh, tout something that serves their interests, even if it comes from somebody who's perceived as being on the, quote, other side of the debate. And you get the word even in there. Even the New York Times says this is awful. All right. Uh, the the tributes are just pouring in for Tom Brady. Uh, seven-time Super Bowl champion five-time Super Bowl MVP, uh, and, you know, all-time leader in touchdowns, all-time leader in passing yards. I mean, it goes on and on and on. A a little lesser-known fact is that as a result of saying I am retiring for good, um, Tom Brady becomes, because he's already signed the deal, a football analyst for Fox Sports, and for which he will be paid $375 million. Now, that's over 10 years, but still. So, uh, one could see that being a little incentive. I mean, he gets paid all his money and he doesn't have to get tackled or beaten up or thrown for a loss, <laughs> uh, unnecessary roughness. He just gets to sit in the booth and share his thoughts and I'm sure make a lot of appearances and all of that. In a not-so-happy football item, a member of the Philadelphia Eagles, which will be in the Super Bowl, indicted on alleged rape and kidnapping charges. The guy's name is Josh Sills. Indicted for first-degree felonies in Ohio, excuse me, uh, a case going back to 2019, when he is charged now with engaging in sexual activity that was not consensual. Um, but on the other hand, he only, he's only played in one game this year, his rookie season. So it's not like this is going to, you know, cause the collapse of the Eagles. But it's a it's a distraction for the team and for this guy. I mean, it's the last thing you want. You finally. You're going to get to the Super Bowl in your rookie season and you're dealing with this. All right. James Comer. You'll get to know that name quite well because he is the Republican congressman who chairs the Oversight Committee. And he was on Fox last night and he was saying that either Joe Biden or Merrick Garland were engaged in a cover-up by ordering the National Archives not to disclose the discovery of documents in Biden's possession before the midterms. Well, the... Documents were actually discovered about a week before the midterms. But nevertheless, what is Comer talking about here? So Comer is saying that just before the archives made contact with his subcommittee, his committee, I should say, um, they were given a Justice Department letter saying that the General Counsel of the National Archives wasn't allowed to say anything about the Biden documents. But they went ahead and did a three-hour transcribed interview with the general counsel. He goes on to say it's a double standard. If you go to the National Archives website, there's pages and pages of press releases and information about the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago. But there's no press release on anything on the website about President Biden. Well, that doesn't look good. And so Comer concludes that DOJ and the White House is interfering with this. I don't think there's any evidence that the White House is interfering with this. I'd be happy to see some. And as for DOJ, well, that letter raises an interesting question. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Okay, story number one. Hunter Biden is going on offense. Hunter Biden obviously is going to be, already is, the target of not just a federal criminal investigation, but of investigations by the House Republicans. And basically, he has kept a rather low profile. You know, you would assume with the idea of keeping media coverage of his varied problems... To a minimum, so as not to embarrass his father, the President of the United States. Well, the Washington Post has a pretty detailed piece saying that uh, Hunter's lawyers have sent a series of letters to state and federal prosecutors asking for criminal investigations into those who got access to and distributed his personal data. Well, my first reaction to that was, Probably not a good idea, especially if you're part of a prominent political family, to leave your laptop at a repair shop in Delaware. And I think that's going to undercut these letters sent out by Abby Lowell, longtime Washington attorney uh, known for being aggressive, recently hired by Hunter. He has sent these letters to the Justice Department and to Delaware's Attorney General Asking for investigations in several key players. And in addition, sent a letter to the IRS challenging the nonprofit status of Marco Polo. I just know the game you play in the swimming pool. A group that is run by conservative activist Garrett Ziegler. Now, this is interesting. Those close to President Biden and the White House have preferred a more conservative approach, you think? But some individuals around Hunter Biden, according to this Washington Post story, have wanted to be more assertive in telling his side of the story and going more directly after his opponents. In addition, uh, Hunter Biden's lawyer sent a letter to Fox's Tucker Carlson asking for certain corrections and things that Tucker has said and saying otherwise we might have to file a defamation lawsuit. Uh, And they know each other. And I'm sure Tucker Carlson will be responding uh, tonight on his show. I think that's a reasonable expectation. Now, here's one person familiar with the strategy, quoted anonymously. This marks a new approach by Hunter Biden and his team. Oh, you think? He's not going to sit quietly by as questionable characters continue to violate his rights. And media organizations peddling lies try to defame him. So I don't know, if he drops off the laptop and never retrieves it, and other people get access to it, does that require an investigation? And if there were to be an investigation, what would that tell us? Uh, So, for example, in the letters that were sent out, one of the people who is being fingered as a good subject for investigation is Rudy Giuliani, who got that material, that laptop material, Uh, from this guy, Mac Isaac, in Delaware, and gave it to certain select journalists. Uh, Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello, also named Steve Bannon, who also has material from the laptop and helped facilitate stories, also named. Now, uh, Mac Isaac, the the computer repair guy, was uh, asked about this. His lawyer said he'd just gotten this last night, so this all broke pretty late last night. After skimming the letters, the only thing I see is a privileged person hiring yet another high-priced attorney to redirect attention away from his own unlawful actions. No other comments at this time. Well, you know, having fired these shots, uh, this is just round one. And now we'll sort of hear from everybody who wants to respond to that. And we'll see whether it leads anywhere. Is Is this basically a PR strategy to drum up sympathy for Hunter Biden? Does he actually think that he can get some of these investigations started? Again, it isn't that somebody stole the laptop. It is by every account that we have that Hunter Biden left the laptop, which in retrospect was probably not a great career move. Okay, story number two. What about the Republicans in 2024? So you have this sort of big New York Times thumbsucker saying that increased uncertainty is rippling through the Republican Party over how to beat Trump in the primaries. Uh, and it says, this is sort of weird. It says, contenders have so far been unwilling to officially jump into the race, where of becoming a sacrificial lamb on Trump's altar of devastating nicknames and eternal fury. Interesting choice of words there. Some are waiting to see if prosecutors in Georgia or New York, I talked about the Manhattan DA and Stormy Daniels yesterday, will do the heavy lifting for them and charge Trump with crimes. Related to 2020. And sitting governors, like, yes, Ron DeSantis, are trying to score some legislative victories, because this is the season when most state legislatures are in session, that they can use when they go talk to voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. Now, then the exception to this rule, the story notes, is Nikki Haley. who It's funny how many bites of the apple you get. First, she leaked that she might be getting in. Then she leaked the date. Now everyone's saying, well, sources say that former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley will uh, jump into the race on February 15th. Well, it's no longer sources. I mean, she's confirmed it. She sent out a bunch of invitations for a special announcement in Charleston. She, of course, also the uh, former U.N. ambassador under Trump. And Larry Hogan, who just finished his two terms as a pretty popular Republican governor of Maryland, uh, said this week he's actively considering running, which does raise the question of not just timing, but how many people are going to jump into the race. Because as is obvious, and as the Times points out, a bunch of candidates getting into the race, good for Trump. Then what does he need to win? Maybe 25 30%, while everybody else splits the anti-Trump vote. Now, The case that these challengers and aides are making behind the scenes, says this piece, is not that Trump had horrible policies, but that he would lose, that he would lose to Biden. And I'm sure they were going into the last three elections, where President Trump presided over the loss of the Senate, the loss of the White House, the loss of the House. Um, Now, some folks are worried about this. Paul Ryan, former speaker, has called Trump a proven loser, telling people they need, the Republicans that is, they need to find ways not to split the vote. Well, good luck with that. A lot of people want to get in. But nobody wants to get in soon except perhaps for Nikki Haley. Now, it's beyond um, debate that Nikki Haley uh is jumping in, but at the same time, she had said that she wouldn't run against Trump. She said this back in 2021. If he runs, I'm not running. And Newsmax uh Greg Kelly played the video of that argument. And so um look, if I had a list of all the politicians who said they were not gonna run for ex-office or they would serve their full four years or six years in such such an office and then change their minds, and for each of those I had $100, I could retire tomorrow. I mean, you know, it's just kind of given, a given in my view, that when the politicians say these things, voters take it with a grain of salt. In fact, in Florida, the legislature, friendly to DeSantis, would have to undo a law or a rule that says that if you're going to run for another office, you've got to resign the office you're in. I don't think they want the governor to do that. Um, So DeSantis is obviously, you know, doing his low-key campaign. And I think, you know, the one only benefit I can see for Nikki Haley is that she's seen as kind of cautious. Um, So if she gets in, she seems bold. She's the first one. I'm going to take on Donald Trump. And if she can run her own race. But I I wonder whether, I think Nikki Haley would be a stronger general election candidate as a woman, as a person of color, uh, of Indian descent, obviously. Uh, As somebody who was able to convince the people of South Carolina, where, like other southern states, this is a very sensitive issue, to take down, uh, it was either the Confederate flag or a certain Confederate statues and move her state into the 21st century. But all those things may not matter much to the maga crowd. Which is why I say I could see her having trouble getting the nomination. She's, you know, down just a few percentage points in the ridiculously early polls. But at the same time, if somehow Nikki Haley did get the nomination, she might have broader appeal a lot of democrats like her for what some of what she did in South Carolina. And that brings me to number 3. A really insightful column in National Review by Jim Garrity, in which he talks about the profiles that get written of people running for president. And he's got it's got some great a great sort of take on the media because he's saying that, look, when we write these profiles for people who don't have much of a chance of getting elected, You know, we're just enabling their delusions of grandeur. Um, He's saying, sure, you know, cover them as news, but there's a certain kind of profile that helps a lesser-known candidate be taken more seriously. They usually have a headline, he says, along the lines of, could this man slash woman be the next president? Um, And then there's a nice picture, and the person looks as presidential as possible. The article offers up the person's life story, their accomplishments, some gushing quotes from their colleagues. Is this sounding familiar? And then somewhere in the middle adds a to-be-sure <laughs> section that lays out, the, but probably understates, the enormous obstacles that the long-shot candidate would have to overcome. It's not easy running for president, and it's not easy getting the nomination. And it's not even easy to make it all the way to Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, this figure, so basically what these stories say is this figure, you haven't heard all that much about, really could be sitting behind the Resolute desk in the Oval Office in the not-too-distant future. And because the writer, editor, uh, and reader all quietly know this person, in fact, is not likely to be the next president, and has a pretty good chance of running out of money or flaming out in New Hampshire or whatever, the end note is usually like this is one to watch or ready to make a splash. And You know, what's funny is that Garrity doesn't let himself off the hook here. He says, perhaps, you know, I've written too many of these over the past couple of decades. And he cites this anecdote. Former Virginia Governor Jim Gilmore, who in 2016 received 12 votes in the Iowa caucuses. And Jim Garrity adds, not 12%, not 12 precincts, 12 votes out of more than 186,000 cast. And he later said it didn't matter because he was focused on New Hampshire. The next week, he won 130 votes in the New Hampshire primary. Uh, And then he goes through, uh, the piece goes through in National Review, some of the past presidential candidates who who may not be um, on the tip of your tongue, shall we say. For instance, John Delaney. Remember anything about him? Do you remember anything about John Hickenlooper's? presidential campaign. He was a substantial politician who went nowhere. How about Jay Inslee? Hickenlooper, Colorado, Inslee, Washington State, Seth Moulton, Bill de Blasio. Well, I do remember that one because I thought he made a complete and utter fool of himself and had zero chance to win anything. Do you remember anything about Kirsten Gillibrand's campaign beside that woman who just wanted to get some ranch dressing? What about Steve Bullock, Julian Castro? How about Joe Sestak? No, I didn't make up the name. He was a real candidate, a retired admiral, former congressman. I talked to him. Um, And then he gets into Nikki Haley. And just to wrap up this segment, he says, Garrity writes, I like Nikki Haley. She's an impressive figure, has wide-ranging accomplishments in governor, a rare GOP leader with significant experience in state government. She served in the South Carolina House of Reps before... uh, becoming a two-term governor. Yeah, she's had a lot of experience and foreign affairs experience at the U.N. She served on the board of directors of Boeing. She serves on the Clemson Board of Trustees. She's the daughter of Indian immigrants. Her husband is a combat veteran who served in Afghanistan. In other words, Haley, her life story and her record offers a lot of fodder for one of those glowing profiles. But as we've seen, the subjects of glowing profiles don't necessarily become president or anything close to it, I would add. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, story number four, showdown at the White House. Much anticipated, highly dramatic, an incredibly high-stakes meeting late yesterday afternoon between Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. So McCarthy came out, And I love, people kept asking him, you know, what about this, what about that? And he said, I'm not going to negotiate with the press. You know, with all due respect, you have a job to do. I'm not going to negotiate with you. Um, McCarthy was upbeat. He said they'd had a very good conversation. They each made their views known. And they're going to continue to have conversations. McCarthy said he hoped that um, they would be able to resolve this before June. So what's going on, and this is what I talked about, on Special Report as well, is that, you know, it's this great kabuki dance, and ultimately both sides are going to have to cut a deal because otherwise the U.S. government goes into default. And so McCarthy wants spending cuts. Biden says, I need a clean bill. So they talked about it. Um, The White House put out a statement saying President Biden made clear that both parties have a shared duty, not to allow a catastrophic default. is not going to be a default. They always settle these things at the end. Uh, McCarthy was saying he hoped it could be settled well before June. That's when basically the government, that's the real deadline. Um, but look, Republicans, you know, everybody has played this game. Republicans feel like they can use the dead ceiling as leverage to get concessions in this divided Congress. However, how does McCarthy explain the fact that three times he voted for a so-called clean debt ceiling bill, meaning no spending cuts, under President Trump. And had Joe Biden explain the fact that when he was Barack Obama's vice president, he and Mitch McConnell sat down and cut a deal that did include spending cuts. So everybody's like on their high horse. Um, McCarthy, you know, was asked, well, would you have a, a commission to study sp- uh, spending cuts? And he says, well, we don't need a commission. There's all kinds of, uh, you know, waste, fraud, and abuse in the budget. I don't need to sit around for some commission to tell me that. And McCarthy, of course, also uh, tamping down this attack by the Democrats about cuts to Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, so basically it's a game of chicken. And the Biden people want Kevin and his GOP troops uh, to come out and say what they would cut if they want spending cuts. And then they got a big target to shoot at. And they're not going to fall for that. Biden doesn't have that luxury. He is required by the Constitution to submit a budget, which he will do, I think, in early March. Uh, and then Kevin McCarthy has this other issue, which he's got this razor-thin majority, as we saw in the fact that it took him 15 ballots to become House Speaker. And he's got to come up with something that his caucus can swallow. So there'll be a lot of posturing, a lot of maneuvering, blah, blah, blah. Um, And, um, ultimately they'll settle. And in the meantime, it seems to me, there'll be endless stories, endless stand-ups. And, you know, I'll let you know when you have to pay attention. I'll suffer through this so you don't have to. Let's wrap things up here with number five. I mentioned at the top that people are just genuflecting at the altar of Tom Brady. And... It's not even being framed as a debate. I see headlines that just say, greatest of all time. Greatest NFL quarterback of all time. Greatest NFL player of all time. Uh, it just seems to be an established fact, according to the media and what the hell do they know, but, you know, they do cover these things because most political reporters are big sports fans. Here's a piece by Washington Post's uh, sports columnist Sally Jenkins about why she thinks Brady kind of ran out of gas. And it's it's, it goes deeper than the usual, like, wow, he was so great and we will never see his like again and Tom, please give me your autograph. So, one Sunday night in the middle of this season, she writes, Tom Brady went fishing with his son. It was a peaceful picture. And peace was not something that Brady ever really wanted during his 23 NFL season. So what does she mean by that? Brady leaves football seemingly more emotionally worn out than physically, which is perhaps his most revolutionary act. It may be a more important legacy than his all-time passing records and forklift-heavy pallet of trophies. He's the only player to win seven Super Bowls. Four of them came after his 37th birthday. That's an eye-opener. Proving that it's possible to change the pace of how you age. His self-determined Proving that it's possible to do that and walk away into the sunrise is a victory over a ruinous game that would have stolen the jersey off his back years ago had he not been so calculatedly self-protective. His body had plenty of athletic life left in it. So Sally Jenkins makes the point that even though Brady's final game with the Tampa Bay Bucks, they got blown out and he had a horrible game. For the season. At the age of 45, he made the playoffs and he finished third in the league in passing yards. So it's not that he physically couldn't play the game, it was all the unseen, unphysical burdens that can settle on a man's mind. His marriage, of course, over the last year, we had the divorce from Giselle Bunchen, who put out a very nice tweet or statement on Tom's retirement. Look, they have two kids together and they have to continue to be co-parents. Worrying about parenting concerns. A crypto lawsuit. Remember that Tom Brady lent his name and celebrity uh, to the cryptocurrency folks. Not looking too good right now. Nobody expects him to be an expert on this stuff, but it was another complication in his life. So this is a fascinating quote. Uh, years ago, Sally Jenkins writes, Tom Brady told her this about his just sort of, you know, incredible work ethic and preparation, um, to play the game every season. If I don't really work at it, I'm a very average quarterback. Think about that. He had to think he had to measure every morsel of food he put in his mouth, uh, every activity. Did did it help conserve his energy or did it spend energy? All those years in training probably drained him more than the game days. It was difficult for him to relax. His main drive was insecurity, he said. Uh, Jim Gray, uh, the Fox broadcaster and uh, acquaintance of uh, Tom Brady, recalled Brady once saying he was talking with a friend, a pro golfer, who had played a poor round and who strolled off the course saying, sometimes that's just how it goes. And Brady couldn't believe it. There's no, that's how it goes for him. The game taxed all of him. For me, football is a challenge, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and mentally. But it came with a personal price tag. And that's the bottom line here, I think. So this never would have happened to the old Tom Brady, but during the preseason here, during training camp, uh, maybe you remember this, he kind of disappeared for 11 days. Turned out he was dealing with Giselle and the dissolution of their marriage. He also lost a lot of weight. Um, and so he wasn't able to play, even though he had a pretty, as I said, you know, successful season for a guy who was 45. You know, with that single-minded focus, where you just, you're constantly uh, training, exercising and trying to blot out any distraction other than professional football. Now, there are a lot of athletes who train hard and take the game really seriously. You'd have to say Tom Brady is up there. So now he's done. He's soaking in all the positive press. And as I say, he gets to be a Fox football analyst and make a whole lot of money. Hey, thanks for spending this time with me. Uh, We try to range over the landscape of interesting, important, amusing, and sometimes just funny stories. Uh, If you're not already a subscriber, Apple iTunes is a good place to do it. But I think increasingly many of you are, so you can just ignore that. Hope you have a great day. See you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music.